Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. Today's episode is with Trey Stevens of Founders Fund. Trey and I chat through the Founders Fund DNA and why it's more than being contrarian, it's being iconoclastic. At Founders Fund, there's no defined process to anything, which means that partners have to develop enough conviction in order to push a deal through. When games are about outliers, Having no process and people who are hard to put in a box becomes a big differentiator. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe and leave us a review. We also started a companion newsletter, which sends the top three insights of each episode straight to your inbox. We'll link it below in the show notes. Now on to the interview with Trey. Trey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Eric. So Trey, you've been at Founders Fund for, for quite a while now, right? Uh, how, how long? Almost a decade? Yeah, I started in January of 2014. So coming up on 10 years. So Founders Fund has done phenomenally well since almost the, since the beginning, uh, uh, you know, almost a couple of decades ago, perhaps. And it's not obvious why, because the people who've done super well at Founders Fund, they weren't household names necessarily before. There's something about the Founders Fund DNA that produces phenomenal returns. And I want you to reflect over the, over the past you know, a couple decades, like what is it about how Founders Fund operates that has led to it being successful, you know, fund after fund after fund? I think at its core, it's all related to the debate culture, like the openness of, uh, you know, conflict and conversation internally. You know, I, I had no idea what venture capital was really when I started here. Um, I was at Palantir at the time when Peter asked if I'd be willing to come over. And, um, you know, when I started, I, I have no background in finance, uh, had never made a personal investment of any kind, um, but I think had had a lot of these back and forth debates with Peter on a variety of things. And um, it turns out that that was the mo most important characteristic that I could have coming in is like you have the ability to develop to conviction and the ability to defend that conviction in front of groups of other very smart people. And um, the like practical aspects of venture kind of, you know, came uh, came later. Um, and uh, it turns out they were probably a little less important than kind of the core conviction building process. My, my sense is what made Founders Fund, you know, successful early on was just some outsized bets, I like very concentrated portfolio, and just a massive winner, like SpaceX, Airbnb, uh, a, a, a few others that really like catapulted the, the, the brand and reputation, like that this wasn't just Peter's thing, but this is like a real institution that can produce great, great investors. Yeah, I think, you know, some of Peter's kind of core hypotheses about the venture tech space um, that he, um, you know, built out as part of Zero to One as well, the the book that he he wrote uh, back in the early scenes um, are about concentration. So you should really double down on your winners um, because venture is a power law distribution. You know, the best companies tend to return the vast majority of all fund returns. 
Um, and so you want to have as high of ownership as possible and the biggest winners in the fund. Um, and so we we certainly spend a lot less time than most funds kind of like shooting out capital in smaller dollar amount increments like you would for a typical like seed stage or angel fund. Um, and we do a lot more highly concentrated bets um, in, you know, Series A, Series B um, to make sure that by the time that you have a SpaceX or a Palantir or an Anderil or a Stripe that you've acquired as much ownership as you possibly can. Yeah. We had Ben Horowitz on, on the on the podcast, um, and he talked about how you know Andreessen has five hundred people, et cetera. They've invested massive amount of services that you know makes it hard for other you know firms to compete to sort of win a deal against them. In, in, in his words, what does Founders Fund believe about the world that's different about how ASICSD believes about the world that leads you to take the strategy you've taken? Yeah, I mean to be fair, I love Andreessen yeah. Horowitz. Um, yeah, they're great. a large investor in Anderil. Be <laughs> I would be the last person that would say anything bad about them. Um, our, our pitch is very, very different than theirs. Um, our pitch is that we'll be the least invest annoying investors that you deal with. Like we're going to be, uh, very hands-off unless you ask us to be hands-on. Um, we will be there to be reactive and supportive, uh, in whatever way it, we can, um, at, at, in those moments. But by and large, we're going to give you the space that you need to operate. And I think this goes with like the original thesis of, why we're called Founders Fund is that we wouldn't invest in a company if we thought we could run it better than the founders, right? Like the the only way that we'd ever get to conviction on a company is if we believe the founders would be much better than we would be at, at running that that business. Um, so uh, that that pitch is, uh, so far as I can tell, having you know not only invested here for ten years but also uh, starting two companies that are now portfolio companies of Founders Fund. It's like it's incredible how true it is that um, we are we are very not annoying uh like far beyond how mo most funds probably think about themselves yeah it, it's amazing it, it's amazing positioning in a sense of in, in a market where every firm is trying to talk about how much value they provide what you're somewhat doing is talking about how much value you're not going to take away like you're almost like we're you know it's a jujitsu move it's like everybody you know vcs add negative value we're going to add less negative value you're going to control the company um etc I, I think what you're also bringing significantly is because you're so concentrated um, and you've had wins when Founders Fund is on the cap table to signal to the market that this is this is going to be a great company. Totally. And, and you know, I think I think most investors wouldn't say that they're being value extractive. Like, I think they honestly believe that they're going to be helpful. Um, but, you know, it's very, very hard to, like, move the needle for a company in a, on a like hyper part time basis. Um, and to the extent that VCs believe that they're being super helpful, they're either very like actually being super helpful to a company that's desperately in need of their help, which is not a position that you really want to be in as an investor. You don't want a company to be, you know, in desperate need of your help. Um, or they're just doing something to like boost their own self-esteem to be like, gee, golly, I'm just like the most useful investor ever. And the the value of that to the company that's, you know, being massively successful is like, you know, do I, it's a dubious claim at best, I would say. Yeah, and I, I think another sort of marketing position that you guys have have taken, um, perhaps just organically, is there, there. Founders Fund is the only firm where you can look at a company and say, "Oh, that's a Founders Fund company." Uh, you know, something like Andrew, something like Palantir. Uh, you know, it, it, you just kind of it's it's 
the, the maybe the boldness of the, of, of the vision. It, it's maybe the, the type of company because you have pioneered these kinds of, you know, um, sort of government tech companies um, or, 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 um, or it's also just the aesthetic of the, of the founder willing to be contrarian, willing to, to say something different. And that's just a very strong market position you guys have built over the last decade. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I, I mean, there's a lot of different words that you could probably put on this. I think contrarian is overused. Like people, people use, throw that around as if it's like some hallmark of, you know, successful Silicon Valley stuff. It, it, somewhat true i would say like the there's definitely some value into independent of independent thinking um the founders fund brand I, I agree with you there's something to it where you can just look at something and you kind of know that it, it fits us um i think it's like more than being contrarian it's like being kind of iconoclastic it's like you you're doing or saying something that people are like that's either very right and troubling or um it's like not something that i would ever say out loud um and we have a tendency to kind of collect these uh, like, you know, lost toys uh, and draw them together into a, a community of like-minded people. Yeah, totally. And Brian is an interesting uh, like microcosm here because so Brian, one of the earliest investors at, at, at Founders Fund, one of the one of the more successful investors at, at Founders Fund. It, it's not obvious as as to why, in the sense of he didn't have this like he's not like Ryan Peterson, where he had this massive, you know, um, you, you know, unicorn company that he built, although he did work at Google, of course. And he's also not like the world's domain expert in any specific categories, as far as I know. And when you when you talk to him, he goes on podcasts. He's kind of like, "Oh, I embrace the beginner mindset," and I, you know, like it's it's not just obvious why he's absolutely crushed it. Um, and then similarly, you, you mentioned you didn't have a background when when you got into investment background. When you got into Founders Fund. I feel like um, Founders Fund has just been able to recruit these investors who are not like the most obvious picks as to why they would crush it based on their 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 investing background and they've absolutely crushed it you, you included and in, and in, in brian and others why why do you think that is you know having gone through a bunch of pitch meetings on both sides of the table i think that a lot of investors are maybe they're good at collecting information maybe they're good at like intuitively making decisions maybe they're good at getting access to deals as like the other side of that equation um but they're you know, they're they're making kind of decisions in a similar way to a lot of other firms. And so you could, you know, put a blindfold on and go through a bunch of different pitch meetings with different firms and walk out of it and be like, I genuinely have no idea like which one of these pitch meetings was with which firm. I think with Founders Fund, you kind of know, um, because uh, if you've ever sat in, in a pitch with Brian Singerman, uh, which many of you listening to this podcast probably have, oh, you know, because he's he's asking difficult questions that make you super uncomfortable. Um, and I think that that's kind of something that happens across the board with us is that we encourage the investors on our team to really dig in and push people on things that might make them a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and I, I think that comes in through the truth-telling aspect of this as well. It's like a lot of our founders will come to us not to get help or to like sit on an advisory board or take a board seat or anything like that. They just want us to tell them the truth. And, um, you know, there's no one like Brian Singerman to tell you exactly what he believes to be the truth. Uh, it takes a special kind of person to be that honest with other people. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm curious how you guys think about uh, investor recruiting. About a decade ago, before I started Village with a few folks, I, I was talking to, 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 to Jeff at Founders Fund about a potential process, and I was letting him know that I had other interests. 
and maybe he was just being nice or iconoclastic, but he said something like, if you're getting other interests, that means we don't want to hire you. Like we hire people who wouldn't like work, work at other venture firms or who wouldn't be obvious for, for other venture firms. I'm not, I'm not sure if that was just a Jeff thing or founders fun thing, or if that's changed in the past decade, you've, you've made some more obvious hires recently in Ryan Peterson, Sam Blonde and, and others. But, but I'm curious how you guys think about partner recruiting at, at founders fund. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. Um, historically we do have a bit of a rep for hiring people that you wouldn't normally have approached for a venture, uh, role. Um, that has shifted a bit as we've, um, as we've really reached out to people that we just had a high conviction in that were already in our network. You know, I think you really want people who are going to think differently about the world. And I think like the, the worst possible case for us, uh, is to hire a really, really talented person, a very smart person, a very analytical person, um, who would be a great fit at a lot of venture funds, um, thinking that that would translate well to founders fund. And I think, you know, I, I won't say it's like a toxic workplace. That's not the right framing, um, but it's definitely challenging. I mean, it, you have to be the type of person that embraces debate um, and that embraces people thinking things that are very, very different than you think. I think like the the base assumption that most people in this community have about Founders Fund is that, you know, Peter's the type of person who would hire a bunch of ideological or political sycophants. And it's just not, it's like literally the the opposite of what's true. And I think that would surprise a lot of people is that they, they would think that Peter's just surrounding himself with people that are just going to yes him to death. And actually, like, there's not a single person at Founders Fund that will yes Peter to death. And I think that's part of what drives the returns, has driven the returns historically, is that we're filled with a bunch of people who argue about basically everything. And I think we reach better uh, decisions as a result. Hey. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's something about the Founders Fund brand um, that is willing to be so organic externally, even if it, you know, the, the bad of everything or the good of it is is sort of authenticity. The, the, the challenge of it is what you just mentioned is, is chaos, perhaps. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit chaotic. Yeah. For sure. Um, and, you know, I don't think we would want to give people the external perception that we run like a really tight bureaucratic <laughs> yeah. ship because yeah. we don't. It, it is sort of yeah. chaotic. If you think about like the way deals get done as being kind of uh, an ex explanatory for the types of deals you make, I think the more bureaucratic and organized you are, the more likely it is you make mediocre investments. Because if like one person meets with a company, they're like, I like this, but you know, I want someone else's opinion and you pull in like your partners and your partners are like, 
yeah, I like this. Uh, I, I think it's probably good enough to like get the GP's opinion. It goes up to the GP's and the GP is like, oh, well, it made it this far. Maybe we don't like it enough to write a $10 million check. Maybe we like it enough to write a $2 million check. And then you end up having all of these like kind of mediocre conviction deals that fill up your, your portfolio. At Founders Fund, this is, it's like not even possible to do that. Like there's no Monday meetings. Uh, we don't have like some organized structure or deal process. It's like the only way a deal gets done is if someone has enough conviction to fight through every single person on the investment team. And so like you have to have that champion. It doesn't matter if that champion is an associate or a principal or a, you know, a partner or a longstanding GP. It's like everyone has to fight this process um, or lack of process, I guess I should say. Um, and, you know, we're not hiding that we fight with each other openly on Twitter. We're very open about how different we all are. Um, you know, we had people donating to different political candidates, which for, for people that are hyper-partisan in, in, uh, in San Francisco would be shocked to hear that Peter is still friends with people he disagrees with. But actually that's the way the world should work is that you should have a bunch of people around you that you disagree with. Um, and, uh, and that's just who we are. And I don't think any of us are apologizing for that. What is the right way to think about sort of governance or or structure at Founders Fund in terms of how, how do decisions get made? Is, is Peter uh, sort of a part-time CEO? Are there other people as CEO? Is it a co-CEO? You know, you just talked about how deals get done, which is, I guess, some level of consensus um, um, in terms of you have to convince everybody. Um, how, uh, how does decision-making at the firm work more broadly? Yeah, so you know, Peter is the, the CEO, full stop. Um, and then there's you know, a set of uh, GPs uh, that are, I guess, making the final stamp of approval on deals that are coming through the process. Um, but as I said, anyone can get that done. So like, you know, if you're like two weeks in on the investment team, you have just as much right as anyone else to elevate a deal and to push it with high conviction to to get the approval that you need to, to get the deal done. That I would not say that, by the way, it's con consensus driven. Because there are a lot of deals that get done without consensus. Um, they're just, you have to get enough consensus um, to, to avoid it being vetoed, essentially. Um, and I, I think that's really it. There's really not a whole lot of process outside from that. <laughs> yeah. And, and what about in terms of if you want to hire someone, if you want to do this growth, like, is, is that just um, pitched to Peter, basically? Or like, how do certain things happen? It's it's all the same. <laughs> yeah. the, the process is the same, whether it's a deal yeah. or a hire. It's just at the yeah. end of the day, like, can you convince enough people uh, and avoid anyone being a strong yeah. veto? Um, and the strong veto aspect of it is as important as the conviction and consensus part of it. Because if there's, yeah. you know, if Peter's like, I hate this, I don't want to do it. Or if Keith is, I hate this, I don't want to do it or whatever, yeah. like, it's probably not going to get done. Yeah, it's fascinating. What you've done is you, you've taken what could be perceived as a weakness relative to other firms. You know, other firms would brag about, you know, how much support that they offer for, for companies, you know, all their services, et cetera, or, hey, this is how efficient we operate or whatever. And you've turned it into a strength. Um, and and so it's like, yeah, the good of everything is the bad of everything, but sort of things where you're you're like not as strong, you make it sort of this unique um, sort of benefit in terms of, hey, we're going to make better better decisions this way. It's interesting to, to zoom out. Like if, if I was, the way my brain works when I think about creating this like venture platform machine that's going to do well over decades, like if I could have built anything, it would have been something like YC, like a very clear, like it feels like YC can't lose. 
it can degrade, but it can't move. Like, hey, you have a thousand companies a year, you got special economics in all of them. You don't even have to be that great of a picker. You could replace all your partners with new partners. They don't even have to be that good. It feels like this is just a machine that compounds. Obviously, it's incredibly hard to build a machine. Only one or you know a couple have have been built. But that that's like where my brain goes as to like how to win at adventure. Whereas like if you were like, hey, create something over two decades that once a year or that makes like ten big bets. I'm not sure how many you know big bets you guys make a year, but is very concentrated and you know is going to have turnover in partners, but just going to win fund after fund after fund after fund. That feels just so much harder to do, and yet. That's what Founders Fund exactly has done. It's, it's created that machine to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right. Uh, it's not clear to me that YC can't win uh, or can't lose. Rather, um, I I think that there, you know, if you build a massive portfolio of not concentrated seed stage investments, uh, and you do it in you know with a very wrong headed approach, um, whether it's like you know we're going for like you know, geographic democracy, like we're trying to, you know, invest the same amount of dollars in every geography in the world, then yeah, you're, there are ways that you can screw it up. Uh, I think they've gotten close to doing that a few times in the past. Maybe, maybe they've gotten saved by some big wins. Um, I, I think what Gary is trying to do with it right now is great, like cutting back the, fun, the size of, uh, of the class uh, pretty meaningfully. Um, focusing on kind of core technology advancements, um, you know, getting more concentrated on the the angel side of things rather than you know doing a bunch of follow-ons and things like that that makes them competitive with other venture funds. Like, there's a lot there's a lot to like about Gary's kind of reboot. Um, I guess on our end, like, you know, I I think you're right. Like, it all comes down to like how concentrated are you into the one, two, three best companies in each fund. Um, and how well have you avoided being drawn into writing a hundred two million dollar checks? Um, and I think honestly, it's really hard to do that. It's like that is where discipline really comes in more than anything else because everybody's going to want to follow on. They're going to want you to participate uh, in in like a an extension round or a bridge or you know you're going to have like mediocre conviction at a series A but you don't want to lead the series A and so it's like very easy to get drawn into this death by a thousand cuts thing um and so making sure that you're really reserving and allocating to hammer and take you know much larger ownership in those winners uh is i think where we've done historically a much better job than most funds how do you measure um success on a shorter term horizon against you know your against sequoia against Andreessen, against benchmark or whoever you 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 benchmark against how are you measuring how you're doing relative to them well there's always the assessment of like which companies are we in and concentrated in and which companies did we miss um so you're like anti portfolio or whatever people call it um and i think this is something that we go through fairly often as a team here like you know are there big winners that we didn't that we didn't get access to are the big winners that we passed on i think you know during boom moments it that list gets really long and then in bust moments you look back and you're like actually it's not so bad <laughs> there, there weren't a lot of those that that we uh that we missed um but the equally important part of this uh on the short term is saying can we look at our existing portfolio for this fund and pick the two or three that are going to be the best returners and then do something more proactive to make sure that you're getting 
access to larger, more concentrated chunks in those in those businesses. Yeah. Why were you brought in? Were, were you brought in because there was going to be this emphasis on sort of GovTech, American Dynamism style style companies? Or talk about a little bit about how you started as an investor and and, and then we'll get into how that evolved to the incubations, et cetera. It's a, it's a great question. And honestly, <laughs> I don't know the answer. Uh, but if you ever end up interviewing Dr. Karp or uh, Peter on the podcast, I would ask you to ask them publicly to see if either of them give you an answer. It's like, you know, somewhat unclear to me if uh, Dr. Karp was looking for a clever way to fire me um, and Peter like offered him a safe out or if there was a, a more generous explanation. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I had gotten to know Peter pretty well when I was at Palantir. Um, I was uh, kind of ostensibly like running the sales org. Um, there's not really a sales org, uh, as Dr. Karp has pointed out many, many times publicly. Um, but I gotten to know Peter pretty well. And then he just kind of called me out of the blue and asked if I wanted to come join. I, I think it was from a timing perspective, like it worked pretty well. Like my, my wife had, uh, just given, she was about to give birth to our first, uh, kid who just turned 10, um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it seemed like as good a time as any to go and explore, uh, what, what would be next. Palantir had grown fabulously from when I joined until, the time that I left, um, and to the to the earlier point in in the conversation, like I, I think one of the cool kind of cool things about venture is that you can really learn this business by osmosis. Like the most important thing is that you have an intellectually curious person uh, and someone who uh, reaches high conviction on things, even if it's loosely held high conviction, and the rest of the stuff is not something you need to learn in business school. You know, you can just learn it by doing deals and by being part of uh, investment decisions. Um, and, and I think that was really the way that I went about it that uh, I'm very appreciative of. So talk about your, your journey to then incubating Andrew. And when you realize, hey, we, we need to go deeper on, on this space. This is a space that, you know, VC firms don't historically invest in. So talk about when, when that became really real and then just how you guys because it feels like you've pioneered your incubation practice a, a little bit at Founders One too. So talk about how that's evolved as well. Yeah, I wouldn't say that we have like an incubation practice. I mean, obviously, Peter co-founded um, Palantir. We were the first institutional investor in SpaceX. Uh, Keith started uh, OpenStore. Delian started Varda. Uh, but there's no like program for this. It's not like there's a specific way that it gets done every time. Um, I just think we've been doing it for a while because of what I said before, which is that if the company exists and we don't think we would be the best people to run it, then we're going to invest in that company in as highly a concentrated way as possible. But where there are cases where the company doesn't exist and we feel like we are, for whatever reason, the right people to start the business, um, we will do that as well. Um, and to be honest, I didn't know this. This like was not something that I was cognizant of for my first few years at Founders Fund. Um, you know, I not knowing anything about venture, I just started looking at defense tech companies because I thought this was like one area that I had some edge um, from, from my six years at Palantir. And um, I, I had met with literally hundreds of companies and hadn't made, uh, made a big bet. Um, we'd invested in one company called um, KDM that was later renamed Expanse, which was acquired by Palo Alto Networks. It ended up being a really good return for us, actually. Um, but that was it. That was the only investment we had made in the space. And I was just talking with the investment team saying like, man, it's crazy that there hasn't been a new defense prime since the end of the Cold War. Like Palantir and SpaceX are these great success stories, but 
there, we also really need a company that just builds platforms that compete alongside the primes for the, the major um, plat weapons platforms uh, for the future. And to my surprise, the team was like, well, it sounds like you know more about this space than other people do. You should just start it. I'm like, oh, crap, that's a thing that I can do. I thought I thought you guys were paying me to like be an investor. Um, but no, I think, you know, the openness to this idea that you can you can do both of these things in parallel. In fact, you might even be a better investor if you're also operating in parallel because you see how companies are working in that exact like moment in time. Um, it, it's a huge advantage. Um, and so we've, we've encouraged it and been very open to people on the team taking a similar approach. So you, you don't have a formal incubation practice, but you have some principles, which is we don't incubate something unless we, we're the best ones to do it or it won't exist without us. We're not going to build commodity businesses. It, it, this isn't Rocket Lab, <laughs> you know, like or Rocket Internet or whatever it's called. Um, like this is kind of core to one of Peter's dogmas from zero to one is that competition is for losers. Like we don't we don't want to just get really involved in some commodity business. Uh, if we think that there's something that doesn't exist in the world that needs to exist, then yeah, we'll absolutely take a hard look at that. I, I, I think there's some belief that you guys have around sort of like against sort of factory style stuff and more towards like boutique, very specific. A decade ago, before starting on deck two, I was I was talking to Founders Fund about, hey, is there some sort of like engine by which you could sort of systematize the co-founding of, of companies a bit more based on, I believe, the STEM centrics. Hey, you could do this a little bit, um, you know, pair bank, you know, business person with a scientist and maybe you could do this in a more formal way. And you guys haven't, um, you guys have done it a few times in terms of your incubation, but you haven't launched this like massive systematized co-founder search thing. And I think that speaks to just how thoughtful you guys are before putting things into the world. Like they really ha ha have, to, have to make sense. To not only make sense from a business perspective, but have to make sense for us as individuals as well. Um, without that connectivity, if we were running a formal program, we would be tempted into doing a bunch of stuff that's mediocre. Kind of, kind of like what I said about the having no process actually forces us to be higher conviction. I think it's the same for incubation. Having no process forces us to be higher conviction. I think like the worst kind of founder is a whiteboard founder. It's like the person that the only thing they believe strongly is that they need to be a founder. Yeah. They don't have an idea. They're just going to stand in front of a whiteboard and write down all of the potential ideas and then pick the least bad totally. one. Because for some reason, for status or aspiration or, you know, external image, whatever it is, they're just like, I have to be a founder. That's like the only thing that I can do. And man, that just seems like a really bad starting point for, for a business. Yeah. You know, it's a fascinating way to think about it is like, if you have a very clear process, it's easier to get things through, but in a environment where you're trying to actually do very few things, not having a process is a way to make sure that only the best things, things get through. That's right. Yeah. The level, the level of effort that's required to do anything in a world that lacks process is much higher, much, much higher. Totally. So you guys discuss and debate internally all the time you argue over what the firm should do you know go into here go don't go into the air launch this don't launch that be more this way outline maybe one or two of like some of the more pervasive d disagreements that you had about how founders fund should operate where you guys should go into into the future or like uh, just give us a little bit you know behind the curtain about some of these uh, core debates or explorations yeah i mean it's it, it's usually like the most kind of prominent moments in technology you know like ai is, has been a big one for us like 
you know, is, if it's the next wave of technology, is it going to operate like the internet or is it going to operate very different, differently than that? Um, it, will it be highly centralized and only the big players will be winners? Does that mean that we shouldn't chase the, the market like other venture funds are doing? Same thing with uh, crypto. Like, should we set up an independent crypto fund or should we force crypto deals to go through the same process? Um, obviously, like a lot of internal debate around, around all of these things. I think there's also a lot of debate that happens on ideology. So rather than framing things as like, will this make money? Will it make the world a better place? Our approach is uh, much more open than that. It's like, do we, do we believe that this idea is highly consensus and highly driven by peer validation? Or do we believe that there's actually a differentiated idea here that has the potential to build a massive generational business? Um, so we, we don't chase a lot of the like, uh, the stuff that every it goes just down Sandhill Road, just like doing the same pitch over and over again. Everyone gets excited. Everyone gives a term sheet. It's like those sorts of businesses are going to be overpriced, like almost by definition. And so uh, really like leaning into like being open and vigorous and very full with the debates that we have about all of these kind of philosophical ideological issues. Totally. Ben came on the show and he talked about how they have uh, you know all these specialized funds, right? American Dynamism Fund, uh, Bio Fund, Crypto Fund, and that allows them to to get these amazing specialists to build these dedicated practices and benefit from shared infrastructure, shared branding, etc. You've hired Joey Krug, uh, you know, uh, formerly of Pantera and Augur on the crypto side, Sam Blunt. Like you, I, I see you guys hiring you know specialists in in, in some areas, but you haven't created a you know, your own version of American dynamism fund or your, you know, crypto or kind of created these vertical funds as far, as far as I, I know, wh why is that? Or what, what do you believe about the world that makes your current approach the better approach for you? If you think about like the difference between an absolute and a relative basis, it's basically that if you're focused on evaluating everything in a stack on a relative stack, um, the best performer in that relative stack might not even be a top decile performer on an absolute stack. And so for us, everything is an, an evaluation and opportunity costs on an absolute basis. And so just keeping trying to keep ourselves really honest about where we might get the most bang for our investor buck. Um, like if we had carved out into a bunch of different funds, like would we have the ability to concentrate into the Neuralink round? Like that doesn't really fit any clean bucket. Or would we have in 2017 been able to concentrate a big check into Anderil to start a defense technology prime? Like you know, you, you really have to lean into these, these like once in a generation moments and those don't fit neatly into like reserved buckets for sectors. Yeah. Fascinating. So you're saying, uh, you know, a dollar is a dollar, which is to say it should compete with every other dollar. And thus, if you, you know, if you allocate, you know, too much money here versus too much money there, how intellectually honest are you going to be about, you know, just putting money into the best companies? And then also some of the best companies also defy you know, they're outliers by and by definition, and thus they maybe divide categories. And I think like the really straightforward way that Peter has said this before is that if you're investing in a category, it is definitionally too late. Like you've already missed it. If a category exists, you've missed the thing that matters the most in that category. <laughs> Let's say some, you know, your, your expertise around defense tech, gov tech, do you put out like, uh, or do you have like a request for startups that is sort of this white space that you want other people to go pursue? Or because I see you even in that area being, you know, very concentrated. Um, but given that you have such a superpower in it, should you be doing more there? Talk about 
how, how you react to that or how you think about that? It's really hard. It's really, really hard. And, you know, there are things that I wish existed for sure on the, on the government side of things. Um, but the government is not the field of dreams. You know, it's not like you build it and the government will show up and be like, oh, thank you so much for building this really great thing that we need. Um, it's actually kind of the opposite. It's like if you build it, they almost certainly won't come unless you figure out some edge on the how to sell it side of things. It's probably just not going to work. Um, and so for me, a lot of what I'm looking for is can I find founders that have that edge? Um, and then the tech side, what they build with that edge matters maybe less than uh, than it does operating in reverse. And so you're right, we haven't we haven't made a lot of investments in the space, despite us being like, you know, the largest investor in the three biggest success stories in the last 20 years. Um, and uh, it's just because that team, the team aspect matters so much, like more than it does in almost any other sector or vertical. So um, I, I could like rattle through a list of things that I think the government needs. Um, but without an army of lobbyists and, um, you know, a really, really smart government relations team and really smart procurement people. I'm not sure that list matters. <laughs> Do you believe that you can build that talent up? Like, should you be doing sort of like training to help get really smart people in? I know you do some cultures and some media around, hey, you know, pursue a good quest. Like we need more talent to get in here. But is there is there something you, you, you as in Founders Fund should be doing to build up that supply or, or of talent? Or that's not really where you want to play or think you should play? That's a great on-deck question, <laughs> Eric. You've really, you've really yes. done it. Yeah, you know, there, there's probably something there. Um, and this is something we've talked about internally at Andrew as well, is like, are there ways that we could even figure out how to leverage our kind of operating system internally to get other companies to uh, break through the, the glass ceiling? Um, I think it could make sense. Um, my bandwidth has been somewhat limited, so it's been kind of difficult to do that. Um, and then honestly, like the bigger problem is that it's not clear to me that founders think they need help. Um, you know, when we've when we've gone and talked to some of these the companies in the in the ecosystem to you know for pitches, um, a lot of times there's just like this completely irrational optimism. And it, again, it's not that I believe that I can run their companies better than them. I would hope that they would be better at every single aspect of their company than I would be. But they should at least come in with a level of cynicism about how difficult the market is. And if they're rolling in, they're like, we're going to do $100 million of revenue in the first two years. It's like, I just, you just need, you need a dose of reality, bro. <laughs> like, this is not going to work the way that you think it's going to work. So I would like to see more founders come to me and say, dude, this is friggin' hard. It's really hard. The customer really needs this. They don't perceive that they need it. They just paid Booz Allen Hamilton a billion dollars to build the exact same thing from scratch. It's not going to work. Like it's going to take them 10 years to figure that out. Like everyone just needs to take a dose of reality. Let's look out into the future of, of Founders Fund a bit. You know, you've, you've just made some 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 hires in the past, you know, six months. I mentioned Sam Blanc, I mentioned Joey Krug, I mentioned Ryan, Ryan Peterson. There's probably another or two. But I'm, I'm curious how you think about where in Founders Fund you want to continue to, as a firm, you want to continue to round out sort of the skill sets or areas of expertise in terms of types of folks you, you, you bring in to the organization. And then also just looking out, you know, three years ahead, five years ahead, um, you know, and, and beyond, do you expect Founders Fund, like the core to operate pretty similarly, or do you expect to launch a new product just in the same way that you launched a, a growth fund a, a few years ago? Do you think Founders Fund will expand sort of the set of products or 
why don't you talk about either of those questions? Yeah, on the people side of things, we're just opportunistic. We don't have like a certain strategy that we're going after. Um, we don't like list, you know, job postings openly. Uh, that's just not the way that it works. Uh, when we have an opportunistic moment, we can step into to get someone that we feel like adds something to the team and fills a gap that we have. Like we are always going to be very keen to do that. It's not like the type of thing you could send like a, a cold email and be like, hey, I really want to work in venture. I read your manifesto. It's like, you know, we're not, that's not really the way that we're doing things here. Um, and then on the, uh, on the like product side of things, again, it's pretty opportunistic. I don't, there's nothing on the horizon. We're not looking to, you know, add a, a new type of fund or, you know, a, like a Sequoia heritage like vehicle or change our structure to be evergreen. No, it's just like we're a venture fund. We're going to operate like a venture fund. Um, for the most part, that means we have a uh, a main fund that does earlier stage deals and we have a growth fund that does later stage deals. And that's about it. <laughs> what have we not talked about that um, you think is um, interesting as it relates to understanding how Founders Fund you know, operates relative to how other firms uh, operate or, or what makes it or the individuals in, inside of it different? I think it, the, the thing that doesn't get nearly enough play about this that I'm always surprised by is that there's this, there tends to be this belief that it's like this group of like like-minded based people. And it's just not, it's just not like that at all. Like Eric, you know, a bunch of us here were like all very different people. Like we all came from very different backgrounds. Um, we have a lot of very different opinions. We disagree about nearly everything. In fact, that's like the number one kind of like uniting characteristic is that we all kind of disagree in general. Um, and I think like if you're not prepared to go head to head against everyone else, you know, like the Spartan 300, then like you're gonna really have a bad time at Founders Fund, um, and and I think that has has created the nucleus of this culture in a way that makes it really the only venture fund I would ever have any interest in working for. Like I would not want to work at a fund where there was like a clear hierarchy of leadership and a process by which you were to do things and writing investment memos and going to Monday partner meetings and you know, trying to like fight to advance your career. There's just none yeah. of that here. There's just none of that totally. here. And, uh, and as someone who came in not knowing anything about venture, the, the idea that I could have like, you know, worked my way through this over the last 10 years, uh, it, it's just like unfathomable to me inside of any other infrastructure. Like I didn't start a company. I was just, I worked at one of our portfolio companies. I didn't go to business school. Um, I had never read a book about venture capital. In fact, the only thing I knew about venture coming in was that in Wedding Crashers, they told people they were venture capitalists. <laughs> and that was like my entire exposure to the thing. And yeah. um, I think the thing that Peter saw that is the thing that we try to see in all of the people that we bring onto the team is a, an incre incredibly lively passion, conviction motivator and the ability to hold your own against really, really smart people. And when we've lost people historically, it's because they came in and they're like, I just don't want to do that. I just, I don't want to go to battle about every deal. I, uh, I don't want to argue with Peter about his philosophy uh, when, when I put forward a deal. And um, man, for me, that's really fun 
but I can totally get why for some people that's like their worst nightmare. So yeah. I think that's like, that's really what Founders Fund is at its core. Totally. It, it is really fascinating to think about when, when sort of games are about clear inputs and clear outputs, you could see how, you know, very clear processes are, are really important. But when games are about outliers and everything's about outliers, one can also appreciate how having kind of a, a process that's hard to put in a box um, and, and people who are hard to put in a box uh, might make it more likely to, to produce outlier returns in a, a, or to get those outliers on, on a repeated basis. Historically, that's worked really well for us. Like historically, you know, it hasn't been difficult to get through every deal that I made. Yes. Has it been appropriately aligned towards the winners? Like, have I backed off on the deals where I should have backed off? Yes. Because no one was going to rubber stamp my bad deals. Like somebody was going to stand up and say, this is dumb. Here are a hundred reasons why it's dumb. And looking back, I'm glad I didn't make any of those investments. There's not a single time that I started fighting and then backed off. And then I went back to the team and I was like, ah, I told you so. We should have done that deal. Like it turns out that having raw, transparent input from a bunch of really smart people is the best possible way to avoid making bad investment decisions. And you know, I, I hope that we're able to sustain that as part of our culture moving forward as well. Totally. Speaking of culture, talk about Mike Solana and the impact that he's had over the over the past decade plus, because uh, there's probably you know not uh, anyone like him in venture in terms of the impact that that he's that he's made. But you might not you know it might not be as 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 obvious on any single investment. Yeah, I mean, we we honestly have like the most all star cast of support. Uh, up for the fund. Like Solana is a total rock star on, I mean, he like owns the Founders Fund ethos. Like there are times where I'm asking myself, like, does this fit the model of like contrarian, like red pill behavior that I would expect? And I'll talk to Solana and he'll just give me a transparent answer and it's always right. Like he, he is so tapped into our ethos. You have Lauren Gross, who honestly is the best venture COO in existence. Like she makes fundraising look so easy uh, and is the best person I've ever seen at LP Relations. Um, and she manages a bunch of very, very difficult personalities with a level of expertise and mastery that I can't even imagine how she acquired. Um, Aaron Gleason, who runs comms for us, uh, yes, is right. is a total, again, total masterclass in like uh, venture-backed company uh, comms strategy, as well as like the strategy for a fund that is uh, constantly beset by criticism, as you're well aware. Um, she's done an incredible job with that. Mike Petriano, our designer, is like next level. The stuff that we put out publicly always looks way better than it has any reason to. Um, our finance team is the least annoying finance team in the world. Like if you ask any of our portfolio companies, like who has the easiest quarterly reporting process, they'll all tell you Founders Fund. Um, our, our team is just super good. Neil Pai, our general counsel is, uh, like, you know, people always ask like, how do you, like, what do you do, uh, once you've like decided to make an investment, what's the process? I'm like, I just copy Neil Pai and everything just magically happens. Like he's an absolutely incredible GC could not ask for a better situation. Um, our, our team that like runs our facilities, um, our EAs, I mean, they're, they're like literally the best people I've ever worked with in these categories. Um, and, uh, I, I just, I feel super lucky to be surrounded by a bunch of people who tolerate 
the insanity of our partnership. Uh, the things we say publicly, the messes we get ourselves into, the types of companies that we start. Um, and not only have we built an ecosystem of people who won't be angry at us for doing those things, but actually support us in making sure that we do those things better than anyone else. And Solana is, uh, he's the, you know, he's the MC, he's the <laughs> ringmaster of yeah. that, that whole mess. Totally. No, that, 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 that's, that's well said. Um, Solana once told me that there were three kind of different eras in terms of ethos of, of Founders Fund. There was the original sort of founder friendly as a went, went back when that was like really differentiated and every firm kind of, <laughs> kind of copied it. Um, yeah. Then there was sort of the the techno utopianism, you know, the flying car, like moonshots, you know, SpaceX, you know, Pounder Andrew, you guys have, have not just uh, sort of innovated sort of intellectually and inspirationally, this idea that we need more progress, not that we're having too much progress. Uh, if anything, we're having not enough. Um, uh, but then also, you know, uh, backed it up with investing and incubating in those companies. And then third, maybe around 2015, 2016 is the sort of like, um, you know, Solana called it the courage era, but really just not willing to sort of fall in line with everybody uh, on every issue and willing to take stances or, or, or willing to uh, tolerate individual partners taking stances on certain things maybe is about how companies should be run or um you know certain belief about the world or even things like hereticon right um willing to willing to be bold and willing to be daring at a time where other firms weren't necessarily willing to do it in the same way yeah you know it, it's a perfect encapsulation not surprising coming from solana but I, I think it's been cool to see how in the the first two of those paradigms um the rest of the tech community followed us albeit a little late. Every fund would call themselves founder-friendly at this point. Um, you know, other funds are encouraging people to use FF preferred shares in their foundation documents. Like, you know, that is that has been a very obvious carryover um, from the first era. Um, the second era uh, around tech uh, stagnation uh, being kind of a motivator for, for pushing for tech utopianism, that's become, again, a hallmark of a lot of the most forward-leaning venture funds that are pushing really hard for um, enabling abundance uh, rather than scarcity. Like we want to create abundance in the world. Um, and it's been cool to see like a bunch of other funds that have joined us and making a lot more noise about hard tech investing, science investing, um, really chasing some of those harder categories. And then the third one, I think we haven't had as many people follow us in, um, but when the tech community has really been uh, like Brave New World, did, um, where everyone's just like, you will take your Soma and you will like it. Um, we we have not taken the Soma um, and we're not going to. And I think this is part of what makes us so easy to criticize is people are like, you didn't cite the Pledge of Allegiance to whatever thing that everyone's required to cite the Pledge of Allegiance to. And our response to that is, look, whether or not we agree as individuals with whatever Pledge of Allegiance we're being asked to take, we're not going to say it because that's so lame. <laughs> because a world in which you are expected to recite some pledge to be part of the in crowd is not a world any of us want to live in. And we as an organization have no opinions. We as individuals have opinions, but we as an organization have no right to state any opinion um, because we're made up of different people that have different, uh, that would argue different sides of almost every debate. And so um, I'm anxious and hopeful that other uh, people in the tech community will realize that no one's forcing you to take this Soma drug. Um, but, you know, 
time will tell. And I think we're going to continue pushing on our Hereticon style instead. Yeah, I think that's a great place to to, to wrap. I've uh, I've personally benefited a lot from friendships and working relationships with uh, you know many of the founders, fun folks, Solana, Keith, Deli, and John, you know, a, a bunch of others. And I'm really grateful you took the time here today to to give us a peek a peek behind the curtain of of how you guys operate and, and how you guys think about the world. I think it's really inspiring. Thank you, Trey. Cool, man. Happy to do it. Really good to talk. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.